From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Yeah, if you'll, if you'll push those little sliders up, then everybody can hear what you're listening to. <laughs> Welcome to EWTN's Open Line Thursdays. We have a little fun with Mr. Producer Man Extraordinaire Michael McCall today on Open Line Thursday. Father Brian Mullady is in Chantilly, Virginia, ready to answer your questions. So pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Three nine eight six. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, the aforementioned Father Brian Milady. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Terrific, thank you. And now that everybody's all upbeat and feeling great about themselves... Um, you want to talk about martyrdom? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, July, in a sense, is a month where we celebrate a lot of martyrs. And I was thinking about this the other day. We talked a lot about the church being the church of apostles, and that's, of course, very important. But we forget sometimes it's also about apostles and martyrs. And one of the reasons that Rome is considered to be the central church is that it also produces a lot of martyrs. So martyrdom is obviously very important to our church because it proves the depth of our love. St. Augustine once said that it's not the pain that makes the martyr, it's the love with which the act was done. And basically what we're loving is the truth. And especially today when Christianity seems, well, you know, I just published the book on the core of Christian civilization, when Christianity seems to be so much under attack everywhere in the world. It's important for us to remember some of these martyrs. Some of them have even been suppressed from the liturgical calendar, which I find odd myself, especially in my order. For example, this month we had uh, John of Cologne, who was with a group of parish priests from various orders. He's the only parish priest ever canonized in the Dominican order, but he was with a group of people that worked in parishes, and they all died because the Calvinists killed them over transubstantiation. And there's a, a famous uh, painting 
uh, there were Norbertines and Franciscans and Dominicans and kind of all united in their death in the affirmation of the truth of the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. And then, of course, we have the wonderful, uh, almost romantic example, because it actually became the occasion for the institution of an opera of the Mars of Compiègne, who were the Carmelite sisters, nuns. Are they the ones that went to the gallows singing? Yes, who were killed in the French Revolution. And first of all, as uh, their, their whole story is very interesting because when they were arrested, they couldn't find any clothes to put them in except their habits because all their secular clothes, which they were forced to wear because of the civil laws in France at the time, were in the laundry. So they didn't wear the top part, the veil and the wimple, but all the bottom part while they were being tried and then condemned was the Carmelite habit. And of course, the scapular is the central part of it. And they were imprisoned with a group of nuns from England who were being sent back to England because they were English nationals. And they decided to offer their lives for the fall of Robespierre and the terror, the, the great terror. And so when they were condemned to death, they were taken to the scaffold in the tumbrils, you know, the little wagons. And then when they got there, most of the time the crowd was screaming uh, vengeance. But when the Carmelites got there, they began to sing. Uh, Some people say it was the Vani Caratur Spiritus. Some people say it was the Salve Regina and the opera. It's presented by Pulak in a very, very strong way because they start to sing and all of a sudden there's a hush, the crowd hushed. There's almost absolute silence. And then as each one mounted the scaffold to be beheaded, they knelt down and asked the Mother Superior's permission to die. And in the way it's presented in the opera, of course, you hear the guillotine coming down and one less gets in the chorus, and finally they have the last one. And then all you experience at the end of the opera pretty much is silence. Now, interestingly enough, Rosepierre actually did fall one week later, and the Carmelites had offered their lives for this um, uh, intention in returning France to the true faith. There are other martyrs also during the month of July that we don't know very well, or that are ancient Roman martyrs that we haven't celebrated too well in the most recent church. And I believe Stein is around this time too. Uh, Caius Bransma, who's another Carmelite, he may be in August, but very close to this part. All of them witness to the fact that the truth of the Catholic religion is worth fighting for. But what are we, how do we fight? We fight by experiencing what the blessed Abbot Anthony, the first hermit in the desert described, especially in the religious life, as a martyrdom to our own conscience. To those places where we haven't been as much loving as we should be, 
and the whole witness of the martyrs to us, and there are lots and lots of them in Christianity, the whole witness has to be to a return of a loving attitude in our daily lives, especially toward the people with whom we live and work. And this itself is a very strong witness to the truth of the Catholic religion. So during this month, when we celebrate the martyrs, let's remember why they died. They died for him. They died for love of him. And they died for love of the truth. You know, I often wonder if faced with that situation, if if I or anybody of our time would have the 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 faith and the wherewithal to to make that ultimate sacrifice uh, with the conviction that so many of those who have gone before us have. And I know that, uh, you know, we grew up in an era when the Catholic schools were largely uh, populated with priests and religious as the teachers and the faculty of the school. And they used to, the, 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 the nuns especially used to read the stories of the martyrs and of the saints and of our, of our family history, really. And, uh, you know, my wife uh, went through 12 years of parochial education, and the sisters really instilled in them a love for the martyrs, and she was particularly taken by St. Isaac jokes. And she often said that she wanted to be a martyr when she was a little girl. I want to be a martyr, but I don't want them to pull my fingernails out. <laughs> yes, I actually had a devotion to Isaac Jones too when I was a teenager. Um, we we had a priest. He he died prematurely at the age of sixty-eight or so. But he was the art editor in Magnificat. Um, he wrote the art pieces at the back of the magazine. Michael Morris. And he was asked once where he got his love for iconography and art. And he said, well, that's easy. The sisters gave it to me. <laughs> and uh, the similar thing is true with, with many of us who received a lot more than the three R's in Catholic school. We received in the 50s a whole Christian culture that really is difficult to find now. I can recall when I was in grammar school learning the whole mass of the angels of black put in the free. Sister taught the whole school. Beautiful. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call at 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a beautiful online learning series opportunity for you. Women Made New, Discover the Beauty, Truth, and Goodness of the Church. With the EWTN online learning series, you can delve into the riches of the faith and grow closer to the Lord with free videos and study guides. In uh, Women Made New, you'll be inspired by the stories of Kristalina Everett, Joy Pinto, Teresa Tamio, and Cameron Frad as you hear how God helped them overcome trials. 
Most importantly, you'll understand that he will help you also. Enroll in your course today at the learning series at learningseries.ewtn.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Um, Austin would like to know, Father, how is the real presence in the Eucharist different from his real presence within us? Okay, that's very actually easy to answer, but very question today. Uh, the real presence in us is due to sanctifying grace. And sanctifying grace is a quality. It's what philosophers call an accident, which doesn't mean an unforeseen event. What it means is a being that has to exist in something else. So it's a modification in our soul that allows us to know as God knows and love as God loves. And, of course, it can be lost as it is lost through mortal sin. But the real presence in the Eucharist is a true, substantial presence, not an accident. It is a transformation of everything that is in the bread, except its appearances, and the one except its appearances, to being very much the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So the Eucharist is God. We worship it as God. We genuflect before it. We um, pay homage to it, to it, whereas we don't worship God's presence in our neighbor. I remember we had some strange uh, priest who was teaching the children First Communion. He says, oh, tomorrow's the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. Well, that's our feast, too, because we're the body of Christ, too. And I said, oh, really? Well, next time I go over to that parish, I'm going to genuflect before him. Uh, no, it's it's a different presence. They're not unconnected because obviously the presence of Christ in the Eucharist helps to support the presence of Christ in us by grace. But the presence by grace doesn't change us into God. Where in the presence in the Eucharist, the transubstantiation, it does. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father Brian Mullady, our Dominican father on Thursdays, is in the house, and he is he is dropping some Aristotle and some St. Thomas Aquinas on us already in the first 15 minutes of the program. So pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Uh, Andrew writes in, Father, are intrinsically evil sins sinful for everyone, or do they vary from person to person? Well, no, that's what makes them intrinsically evil. (laughs) What makes them intrinsically evil is that these particular sins are incompatible with human nature, not just with my person or someone else's person, but they're incompatible with human nature. And therefore, since God created our nature and he wants our nature to go to heaven, they're basically incompatible with him sharing uh, his goodness with us. Not that he doesn't want to, but that we have refused to receive it. And we have an email from Vince, and he says, If we are celebrating the wedding feast with the bridegroom every day at Mass, 
then how are we keeping to the scripture that says that when the bridegroom leaves us, there will be fasting? Well, first of all, you're being a lot of rather literal about um, celebrating the bridegroom with this everyday mass. The bridegroom is in heaven now. So our union with the bridegroom uh, is in our souls because it is a spousal union. It doesn't demand fasting anymore. Uh, what Christ was saying about if when the bridegroom is with you, uh, you don't need to fast, but he's gone, means simply that the custom of fasting, remember Christ was approving both, eating and fasting. The custom of fasting, which is a penance, is something that we experience now because we're trying to prepare our souls to experience a greater detachment so that we can go to heaven more easily. But we do this in a totally different sense than the people of the Old Testament did. We're looking forward to the future Messiah. And of course, the people that brought up the objection we're still looking at it from Old Testament values. And there's nothing wrong with that if you're living in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, as is often the case with the law of God or the customs of the Old Testament, you receive a new meaning. And in this case, the meaning would be the formation of a righteous conscience. 833-288-3986 is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We had now to Les, and Les is in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Les, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Hello. Hi, Les. What can we do for you today? Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, this Saturday I'm going to go to confession, and Sunday I'm going to be going to Mass for the first time in about 20 years. And I was wondering if there was anything else I needed to do to, before I take communion for the first time in over 20 years. Oh, well, congratulations. First of all, we're thrilled. Uh, well, you need to be sure you examine your conscience well before you go to confession. That's the only thing. Uh, I am somewhat amused when people come. I'm glad they come because they've decided to return to the practice of their faith. But they'll say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was 10 years ago. I wasn't very loving. Okay, what does that mean? <laughs> Were there deeds that express this lack of loving? And uh, remember, the canons of the Council of Trent are still in effect. They're quoted in the Catechism, which is that before the worthy receptor of communion, every mortal sin must be confessed, kind and number, as far as you can remember. And obviously, in 20 years, you may not be able to remember everything. But you need to be certain you examine your conscience about that. And then it recommends that at least some venial sins be confessed, not as a requirement for forgiveness to go to communion, 
but in the sense that you want to demonstrate your dependence upon the mercy of God. And I would basically also, in making my confession, make an act of thanksgiving that you've been able to actually return to the practice of your religion. And so many are falling away. God bless you, Les, and you'll be in the prayers of many of our listeners as well. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Sarah asks, what does it mean to have a Catholic conscience, and how can you form one? Well, yeah, I wasn't aware there was a difference between the Catholic conscience and the regular conscience. However, I think I understand what you're asking me. Uh, basically, a Catholic conscience includes um, awareness in yourself of all the places where you haven't lived the truth. In other words, it's not a matter of feelings. It's a matter of thinking. And again, regarding confession, you need to be certain that you have confessed all your serious, grave sins as much as you can kind in number, because the Catholic conscience emphasizes that. Now, in addition to this, in the formation of a Catholic conscience, you need to be sure that you form it also according to the teaching of the church because many people don't pay any attention to the teaching of the church when they try to form their conscience. And that's not right. In Catholicism, truth is defined in certain important instances by our authorities. And that means that when we're forming our conscience, we need to form it according to the truth and not what I think or what the world thinks or what uh, my friends think, or politically correct thinking thinks, or wokeness thinks, or anything like that, but in relationship to what the church believes to be always the teaching of Christ. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Carl wants to know what a good analogy for understanding the Trinity is. Do you have one? Well, uh, the classic analogy is the soul. Because you have, you as you exist, then you know yourself, which is like the word, and then you and your soul love yourself which is the Holy Spirit. You know, St. Patrick used the shamrock, which was a, you know, a teaching device which he had available to him. But classically speaking, it's the human soul, which is the primary analogy for the Holy Trinity. Now, obviously, our souls are created, and so there's really a distinction between my person as existing and my person as knowing myself and um, my person is loving myself. They don't rise to the level of being separate persons. But still, that's the classic image, is the human soul. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Again, it's a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. If you're not in the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. Your number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Um, Arnold writes in and says, My Protestant friend believes that the ninth and 10th chapters of Hebrews disprove Catholicism because Catholics continually offer sacrifice. How can I explain that it's one sacrifice? Well, the sacrifice now goes on in heaven that occurred on earth. And Hebrews is reflecting this using the great liturgy of Yom Kippur. And uh, so we're not, I think what he means is the Protestants accuses of offering the sacrifice over and over and over again, as though the bloody sacrifice was inadequate or something like that. No, the one sacrifice which Jesus offered once and for all on the cross in a bloody way is continuously offered in heaven by Christ in his loving obedience, giving himself to his father as priest and victim, and then seeking to transform us in our own time by us being a part of that one sacrifice in our time, in our place. But it's not a different sacrifice. The way the Council of Trent's put it is this. The priest is the same, the victim is the same, only the manner of offering differs. In the bloody sacrifice 2,000 years ago, of course, it was the shedding of blood. In the sacrifice which occurs in the Mass and reflects the continuous offering of Christ in heaven, this is an unbloody sacrifice, but it's all the same sacrifice. And we've got a, uh, an email from John, and he's got two related questions. He's looking for a little clarification on mortal sin. Uh, the first part of the question is, if one of the conditions for mortal sin is to know that something is serious matter, but the person, such as a non-Catholic, does not believe in the gradation of sin, can he commit a mortal sin? Well, of course you can commit a mortal sin, <laughs> because certainly the Protestants accept the commandments. In fact, I think their problem is with venial sin, not with mortal sin. Uh, they don't make any distinction between the two. And uh, we do. So uh, the fact that they wouldn't know about the idea of it being a mortal sin, well, I think for them, there are no sins that are not mortal, which is very weird, I think. But um, yes, of course he can. If anybody who knows that something is directly and seriously against the commandments and wills it as such, commits a mortal sin, whether they call it that or not. And he follows up by asking, if one of the conditions for mortal sin is that the act itself must be serious matter, 
but a person mistakenly believes something is serious matter that is not and still freely chooses this act, is that mortal sin? Well, it would be subjectively because you perceive it as being deeply against the law of God, but you do it anyway. Now, of course, such a person has to be educated. And I can tell you that there's a lot of people who come to confession today who really don't seem to be able to make any distinction between mortal and venial sin. And you try to explain to them that's not really a sinner, it's only a venial sin. And, and a lot of them, they won't accept it, you know. I mean, it's... I, Recently in COVID, you know, I've had a lot of people confess missing bass on Sunday. And I say, yeah, but remember there was this dispensation by most of the bishops where you don't have to. I mean, it's not under a matter of precept of sin for many of the bishops. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, They're just so used to the whole idea that they, they can't get it through their skulls that when the precept does ends in force, now many of the bishops, of course, thankfully, have reinstituted the Sunday obligation. But when it isn't in force, it may not be the most ideal way to attend Mass on the television or whatever. But you're not missing Mass by your own fault, contrary to the Third Commandment, in, in that context. So it's, it's hard sometimes. People don't make distinctions. And I've even had people who've come with wanting advice about their cat. (laughs) And they somehow think that not feeding their cat properly falls under the category of mortal sin or something. I just, I I don't know what to say. (laughs) Joy writes in, I am currently dating a Catholic who has divorced his non-baptized ex. I believe the ex-wife is a non-believer and they had a civil wedding. Can I marry him in the Catholic Church? And what can I do to be able to do so? Uh, now, let me let me get this straight again. These marital problems are so... Okay, the spouse is non-baptized. Correct. But the other spouse is Catholic. Correct. And they were married before a justice of the peace. Correct. They were married before a justice of the peace. The marriage isn't real. Correct. Doesn't matter. <laughs> a Catholic is bound at least to uh, say his vows uh, before a priest or a deacon, right? So, yes, you can, but um, I don't know. It's very, I'd be sure that the guy knows what he's getting into this time. Yeah, and uh, and she definitely is going to have to, even though it's not a formal case, she would still need to have an official Dispensation from disparity right. of cult. Yeah, right. I, think, yeah. I, be, I believe it's called. Yeah, yes. beautiful. All right. In the sense that you, in the sense that you went to an, another religion or civil ceremony to uh, be married. Now there are places, as you know, where because of the civil nature of the society, the anti-Catholic nature of the society, you have to go through two marriage ceremonies. Mexico is one of them, and so you go through the civil ceremony, but that's only to establish. The civil effects, which would be stuff like sharing property, but the actual marriage itself before God, they have to go through another wedding ceremony uh, as far as the church is concerned. And back to our discussion of mortal sin, Kevin in Tennessee says, I have a child that appears he has no issue with breaking the commandment of honoring thy father and mother. 
while this is a venial sin, if he has the attitude of, I don't care, that I will do it again and will not confess my sin because I'm not sorry, does this then turn into a mortal sin? Uh, I would say it depends on how what it's about. If, if he's going to murder you, yes, it would. Uh, but if it's just that he doesn't want to wash the dishes, uh, no, I don't think so. You, you look, you, it's not... Though it's divine law, it's not like human law where we make law books with grading all these things. I believe sometimes in confession, people have to use their brains and common sense. Uh, sometimes I'll ask a person, well, does that make any sense to you, what you just told me? Oh, it's supposed to make sense. Uh-huh. It's supposed to make sense. So if it's about something trivial or let's say he's 13, I mean, no 13-year-old is going to tell you they're going to do what you want. Or if they do, there it's very rare. Uh, just be patient. All right, <laughs> things change. Uh, Marie in Bethesda, Maryland, would like to know how did Jesus tasting physical death save us, not from physical death but eternal death? Well, because it's in order for the original sin to be atoned, some punishment for the original sin had to be suffered. Now, it wouldn't make any sense for Jesus to assume a moral defect from the original sin, like uh, ignorance, malice, or even concupiscence, because that would detract from his perfect obedience, or by his perfect obedience, he reverses Adam's sin and thus opens the gates of paradise for us. So the only defect that Christ can assume is one that's not moral, namely suffering and death. So his physical death is the punishment, which makes satisfaction because it's embraced in perfect obedience of our Lord in his soul. How's your, uh, how's your crusade history knowledge? Oh, it's... I actually know a lot about the Crusades. Why? Because Dan writes in, did Pope Urban II guarantee salvation to any Catholic crusaders who died fighting in the Crusades? Uh, well, Pope Urban II, yes, in a sense, because you got an indulgence for doing so. But not in the sense that you could, didn't have to obey the moral law or confess your sins in the future or something like that. Uh, the people that took the cross, as I recall, received the plenary indulgence. But remember, that's for past sins and not for sins as such. This is the temporal punishment due to sin. Uh, Robin writes in, she says, uh, Hi, Father. I'd like to know your thoughts on women lectors and altar servers. I know it was changed during the Second Vatican Council, and Pope Francis changed canon law to layperson, but I'm struggling with women doing certain things that's been restricted to men for 2,000 years. Well, first of all, it wasn't approved in the Second Vatican Council. The idea of the woman lector did come along fairly soon, but the idea of a woman altar server was not approved in the Second Vatican Council. That idea was not approved until approximately 1988. And it was only approved by a sleight of hand. <laughs> Where while the Pope was out of town, some cardinal approved it and didn't even ask him. Uh, 
now, I, I guess as such, there's nothing evil about uh, women acolytes or women lectors. Uh, but as far as the acolyte is concerned, especially, they're so intimately connected with the service at the altar that it's always been considered to be something that so touches the priesthood and the diaconate that it's reserved to men. Today, because of the feminist movement, people wanted to expand it to women. And of course, part of the reason, not, not the only reason, obviously, but part of the reason is because that they had women up there dressed in cassocks and surpluses. That might make the smooth the path a little bit for something further. If that's the reason you like it, that's not a good reason. On the other hand, if you really think that your daughter should have service at the altar, um, I think that that would be acceptable as such, not necessarily desirable, but acceptable as such. And um, also, the more the girls get involved, the less sometimes the boys are involved. And as you know, the boys used to look on service at the altar as kind of a, an opening to vocations of the priesthood. So all these things are considerations that need to be made. My difficulty is primarily with the idea that it's been forced on people, pastors especially, who don't really want it. I don't think this should ever be forced. If a person really chooses to do this now, the Holy See's allowed it, then okay, but it, it, it shouldn't be forced on anybody. Uh, Frank would like to know, what does it mean to have a devotion? Most specifically, what does a devotion to the most precious blood of Jesus mean? Devotion, actually, is part of the virtue of religion. And it comes, it's the inner act of it, and it comes from a movement of the will toward uh, affirming a divine good in something. So a devotion to the most precious blood would mean that you actually love the blood of Christ because this blood was the means by which your redemption was accomplished. And it also shows how deeply the love of God is for us. So to approach something with the devout mind is to approach it very freely and very lovingly. This is a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. We're not taking any phone calls today. Uh, Mario writes in, how does the Church defend the perpetual virginity of Mary? The perpetual virginity of Mary is something that's always been taught. It's never recounted that really Joseph and Mary had any other children than Jesus, and she conceived him uh, by virgin birth on the Holy Spirit. I know they refer to the, uh, the Protestants always talk about this. It's an old objection, referring to the brothers and sisters of our Lord. But in other parts of Scripture, it's very clear that those terms are used also for the extended family. So they could be your cousins or something like that. The perpetual virginity of Mary is a theological position, also based on the idea that Christ is so all-consuming when you come to love him, he is, after all, the infinite God, that there was no other reason for Mary to have any other children. Now, in the Josephite marriage, oh, this is a long and interesting theological problem, too. 
uh, if you forbid the idea of ever consummating your marriage, that makes your marriage invalid. But what Joseph and Mary did was God had willed to them they should not consummate their marriage. And they gave themselves in marriage to each other under the proviso that should God ever reveal to them that he, cha- he wants them to consummate their marriage, that they would do it. And in fact, he didn't, and that's for that reason. But they were open to doing so if God should ever reveal it. And that's why they actually have a true marriage. Um, again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Check out the Fathers of Mercy hour this Sunday and every Sunday morning at 4 a.m. Eastern Time right here on EWTN Radio. Roger writes, if Jesus is the theophany of God, does only he receive relative latria? Well, as a human being, Yes. <laughs> you know, in his human flesh, yes, that's true. But the lottery, remember, is a recognition of divinity. So when God reveals himself on Mount Sinai, for example, or in the sacrifices in the temple, the bright shining cloud, yeah, that would receive lottery. And so would the presence of the Holy Spirit. But uh, Jesus is the one who only takes flesh. And so our adoration, our veneration, our worship of him physically is uh, given only to him, but not in the sense exclusively, because the, also the other manifestations of God. Remember, when Moses saw the burning bush in the bright shining cloud, of course, some of the iconographers of the Eastern Church take that to be Mary and Jesus, the burning bush. But you remember that he removed his shoes because he was in the divine presence, which is Latria. Um, an email here from Nathan. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole mind and heart. Is it a mortal sin to not do this? If so, how can we ever be in a state of grace? Uh, okay, mortal sins have to be actions. So if by your action you demonstrate that you don't love God or you act contrary completely to the love which God asks of you, and that's especially in the commandments. No one can say he loves God and disobey the commandments. St. John is very clear about that. Uh, that would be a mortal sin. But look, <laughs> again, I don't understand this legalistic mentality Loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength is, an, is what we're supposed to strive for. It's violations of that, like deeds, um, like blasphemy or whatever, murder or whatever. Those are the mortal sins. Now, it would not be a sin. It would be what they used to call an imperfect act, which is not the same as a sin. And Aaron writes in, if Jesus spoke in hyperbole so often, how do we know that he wasn't speaking in hyperbole when talking about his flesh and blood in the Eucharist? Uh, Well, first of all, I'm not really sure how often Jesus spoke in hyperbole. It's true, Semiticisms are often, you know, easy to pass a camel to pass with an eye of a needle or something like that. But Christ was very specific about his body and blood. And when the Jews objected to it, remember, they said it was a hard saying. He even got more specific. 
And the words that are used about it, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, the eating becomes even chewing, like this. He was very specific and very graphic about it. Uh, This is a typical Protestant objection. He says, I'm a door. Is he a door? No, he's not a door. Well, that's not a metaphor, all right, to say my body and this is my blood. He's very, very serious about that. And you can see it because, remember, if he said it was was a door, well, everybody didn't walk away and find that blasphemous. But when he said it, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in me. They found that blasphemous because they knew exactly what he was saying. Susan is an eighth grade religion teacher, and she says, we are about to jump into the problem of evil. Can you comment on the moral argument for the existence of God and the problem of evil? Okay, there are two expressions of evil. There's physical evil and moral evil. Physical evil is built into the existence of the world because it's material. So one thing's, you know, food is another thing's poison. So what's good for the lamb, what's good for the lion is wicked for the lamb because the lion can eat the lamb. But this is because of the necessity of how material beings operate with each other. Moral evil, on the other hand, springs from the inner nature of man. And it has to do with the fact that because we're not in heaven yet, we have a choice. God does not want puppets. He wants sons, daughters, and heirs. He does not want slaves. So he allows us the freedom to make our own moral choices about this. He is not responsible for those, but he allows us the freedom to do it. God would be responsible for physical evil in the sense that he created the world. But that's, again, only because of the way matter relates to each other. In order for some things to prosper, other things have to suffer. Now, The problem of evil is, as you know, a deep, deep problem. And one of the, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the only books of the Old Testament, he commented on, because he thought it was so important, was the book of Job. And he wrote a literal commentary, and we actually have his autograph in his handwriting, because the problem of the suffering of the just was a very difficult problem for people in the Old Testament. And what basically, well, I could, you know, I once translated this book, it's 300 pages long. But the bottom line is, the ultimate evil for a human being is to lose heaven. Job suffers all these terrible punishments, as you know. But as long as he has not lost heaven, he's not condemned to be inhuman. In fact, in a sense, he demonstrates his faith by becoming more human. And all the friends and all their arguments and the wife with the curse, God to die and all that, it, it, it puts in relief the afterlife, which at the time the Jews found was a developing idea for them. Because their idea was, well, if you're a good person, you should experience good things, period, wealth, etc. In fact, Job was a good person, but he had all those things taken from him. And the reason, remember, was because Satan said, not for nothing does Job fear God. In other words, Job loved God for the wrong reason, which was for material gain. Now, when he can suffer the loss of all that and still maintain that he loves God, 
that shows that the love of God is the most important thing. And in fact, then you have the famous line, I know modern scripture scholars don't like interpreting this in any kind of literal sense, but it's very hard to figure out why it's there. I know my Redeemer liveth, whom I myself shall see in my flesh, I shall see God, which is heaven. And finally, Marcia says, Father Brian, about five years ago, I was picked to be on a jury. Uh, I did go, and before the trial started, the judge asked if any one of us would have a problem with sentencing the man whose trial we would be hearing to death. This man was accused of robbing and killing an elderly woman. I raised my hand and was excused from the jury. Isn't it wrong for us to condemn a person to death? I grew up believing and still do believe that only God will take us from this earthly world and he will be our judge. Am I wrong? Uh, Well, I would say this. You are wrong in the sense that civil society has been given by God, not the individuals, but civil society in certain cases, the right to remove them from civil society permanently, which can only be done by death. Now, as you know, there's a huge debate in the Catholic Church over capital punishment. The Pope himself has written that it should never be done. On the other hand, they haven't changed the catechism that says that um, uh, murder is to kill an innocent human being. Obviously, then it can't be murder if the person's really guilty. And they don't exactly say it's a sin. I forget what word they use, but it's a very innocuous word. So you may, ha- you may think that, and you're perfectly free to think that as a Catholic. But someone else might think the opposite, and they'd be perfectly free to think that too, provided it wasn't for motives of private revenge or something like that. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this uh Oh, uh, mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Thursday. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it again uh, on Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, in the house. And then we'll kick it back to Monday with a brand new week of Open Line with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.